Good afternoon and welcome to Vintage Orange on KUCI 88.9 FM. I am Ellen Bell and I'm happy to be with you this afternoon. Uh, I wanted to, uh, last week I had such an interesting time discussing the history of the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, the attack on Pearl Harbor, and kind of got me thinking a lot about the World War II history in Orange County. And as I was doing the research, it kind of uh, brought me back to thinking about sources or where I could hear these stories or learn about this period of time. And it occurred to me that I had a very excellent source uh, of history um, in my very own family. Family, close to me, close to home, and uh, that person is my dad. My dad, uh, Merle Baker, who lives here in Irvine um, along with me, and uh, dad is a, is a first person excellent resource because he served in, in the military in World War II and, and has always told me stories of his time in the military and given me a great appreciation of that time. And so I thought, wow, you know, sometimes history is a lot closer than than we think. And uh, so today I have a real treat. I have my dad in here as my special guest who will be sharing some of his experiences uh, with World War II. So dad, welcome very much. Uh, welcome. Hello. Good to see you. Good morning, Ellen. <laughs> Isn't this odd? It's like, it sure is. hello, sir. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Well, Dad, thanks for being in today. And I, I, I kind of twisted your arm a little bit, but uh, I thought I part of why I do this show is that I like to be able to share conversations that I've had with people about their personal history, and I've had so many great ones with you. So I thought it would really be uh, beneficial to share them with people here on the radio. So thank you for being willing to do that. You're very welcome. So let me start by sharing a little bit about your history. Um, Dad, you grew up in the Chicago area and lived uh, in in Austin, which is kind of the outskirts or part of Chicago. And uh, tell me a little bit about what it was like when your memories of that time 75 years ago when Pearl Harbor, the attack happened. What, what were your memories of that day? Well, I've been thinking about that ever since you asked me for this program. And um, going back... We're looking back into the early 40s, 1940s, shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Most of my friends in high school, I think I was probably just enrolled in my freshman year in high school or sophomore year, um, everybody was excited and angry and upset with what had occurred. And most of my friends were opting to try and get into the military. And of course, um, that was the way I was thinking as well. So by 1943, I managed to talk my mother and father into letting me join the Air Cadet Forces, which was kind of a, oh, a beginning service for the Air Force. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was my first contact. But I knew then that my, my direction was going to be to get into the Air Force and fly if possible. So that was definitely your goal. You, you, that was the branch you oh, wanted, wanted to serve in. I wanted to fly, yes. You indeed. wanted to fly. Yep. And uh, so in 1943, you joined the Air Force Cadets, which is mm -hmm. kind of, is that like a pre-training yes, thing? Yes, it is. Well, we didn't have specifically training. We had some meetings and things such as that, but basically you were not allowed to be in the service. You couldn't have any aspect of it from that point. But it was kind of interesting to know that you were now affiliated with the Air Force. And the effort and all right. of that that was going on. So then when did you actually... When were you inducted into the military? What in did that happen? In 1944, 
I was inducted into Fort Sheridan, Illinois, and um, immediately got on a troop train, which was one of my very early experiences in that kind of travel. And uh, it was very interesting to see how we packed all the troops on in one of these trains and headed south from Chicago down to the swampland in Louisiana, <laughs> what Mississippi. T- what time of year was that? I'm trying to think. I think it was I, probably late summer, uh-huh. so July to August. So it was, it was hot warm. And hot and sticky. <laughs> um, and um, so when we arrived halfway down there, of course, we were met by different stations where the USO ladies would come out with donuts and coffee for all us, handed up through the windows of the train, and all the fellows on there were flocking to that because this was most first time when most of us were away from home. Sure. Um, so it was much appreciated. What? How? Now, how old were you when this happened? Tell me the truth. Seventeen. Because <laughs> this is a lore. This is kind of a, a story, a family story that you actually lied about your age. Oh no, we weren't going to talk about that. <laughs> I'm telling stories. I don't know. It's a good thing. I think it's been enough time now, Dad. I think that the statute of limitations have run out. But that you fudged your age so that you would be able to get into the military because right, you were not eighteen. Choice, right? So you weren't eighteen yet. See, if I waited until I was eighteen, I had been drafted. Ah, and that you didn't have any choice. You just went where they wanted you. Okay. And I had made up my mind I wanted to get into the Air Force, so the only way I could s- safely do that was to get in when before I was eighteen. Right. And so that's why I fuzzed a little bit about the age and well and we laughed because recently we've been looking for some of your old documents and things that we've needed and you have your, your one paper has says that your birth date's 1926 mm-hmm. so uh, <laughs> it's not the not the one we should use it's not the official but as i said as long as we know the truth i think that it's it's a cool story actually though that you um it wasn't something you were avoiding. It was something you were anxious to get involved that's, in that's right. and become part of this effort and become part of the war effort, which was really the, the theme at very, the time. Very anxious to be a part of that. You're right. So you're only 17 years old. You've never been away from the home, from home, and now you're traveling south on a troop train to, to Louisiana. Is that where you were going? Mississippi, Louisiana, okay. right down in the Gulf Coast swamps. And what was your first destination? Um... Was it Biloxi, maybe? No. Biloxi, Mississippi was the base area. It was Keesler Field, Air Force Field, was the name of it. That's where we had basic training, which was, um, it was truly a basic training. We had every aspect of it. In fact, we were beginning to wonder if we were in the Air Force or the the ground troops because (laughs) we were doing so much walking and that type of activity that we didn't get connected with flying at all for the first couple months. Yeah, so you're starting to feel a little bit like, wait you a minute, sure where you what were. did I sign up for? That's right. And so you're doing the basic training, and you're me- obviously meeting guys from all over the country, right? Absolutely, or, yes. Um, which would have been an unusual experience for you. Sure was. People from California, New York, all over the country. Yeah, what an exposure. And so th- when did you start doing, how long were you at that base approximately? Well, I was there for probably about three months. And um, if you think about the timeline, it was I was getting in just at the end of the war, which was lucky for me. But um, 
they were closing down some of the military uh, necessity training bases. Mm -hmm. And um, when I had joined up, part of the cadet's signature was that you had you were guaranteed that if they did not put you on online training, which was flight training, you didn't get that. The government was not meeting its obligation to you in agreement, and you could be discharged at your request. Mm. So I had that in my pocket, which was kind of nice. Mm -hmm. But while I was at Keesler Field, um, the atomic energy era came upon us, mm -hmm. and um, the war was drawing to a close, and the Air Force was finding it had more pilots than they had planes or need for the pilots by that time. So they sent us notes about the fact that they were closing down the flight training, hmm. which was where we were heading. And uh, we only had about a week of flight training, just the beginning of getting into the trainers, when um, we got the word that our, our squadron was no longer going to be activated. So that's when I decided I thought I was going to probably pull out my contract and say, well, okay, then I think I'll go home. Mm. But then they, they sent me on to a couple schools, gave me the opportunity to go to cryptography school. Mm -hmm. um, gunnery school came as a adjunct part of it. And then they sent me to photography school, uh, which I was very interested in and learned how to build dark, dark rooms and do large magnified aerial photography. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so from that photography, I had word in my um, office space that uh, they were organizing a an atomic testing activity in the Marshall Islands in the Pacific. And they were organizing it starting with photography labs and people who were trained in aerial photography. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, this sounded a little bit exciting. It was the closest I could get to flying because <laughs> I was assigned to a B-29 at the time. And um, so I said, okay, I think I'll stay in. I won't opt out. Um, and they, they sent me to the Marshall Islands where we, we landed on this little hump of coral atoll. And we were kind of surprised that our big planes could land there without breaking. It seemed like we were going to break the top off of it. <laughs> well, what, I mean, we have to, I, I got to ask you some questions at this point, because this is really revolutionary for you. I mean, you, you're a you're a guy from, a young guy, so now you're maybe 18 or 18, something. right. So you're an 18-year-old teenager from Chicago. You'd never been out of the city, never really traveled too far away from the city. And now you are in the South Pacific uh, on, you know, landing on this tiny little atoll. Is it the Bikini Island? Is that where? Well, it's Kwajalein Kwajalein. Okay. It and was on the Bikini um, uh, area. Okay. The chain of islands or the mm -hmm. group of islands. Right. And, you know, it, this, did you, what were your, I'm curious, what were your thoughts of what you thought it would be like? Did you ever have like an image in your head of what you thought those tropical islands would be like? Oh, sure. And I think we thought it was going to be much bigger than it turned out to be. <laughs> it would be more like Waikiki. <laughs> yeah, <than> <laughs> that's kind of what we had in mind. But it turned out that with these big B-29s, they took off very slowly and didn't gain altitude very fast, and they landed the same way. We used to say they had the gliding angle of a brick. <laughs> um, and our the pilot would put our touch our wheels down just as we're getting out of the, the water's edge, and then we'd break on the other end before we went off the other end of the wow. island. 
Uh, and there were a lot of planes that didn't break in time because we saw plenty of tails sticking up out of the water. Um, so that was a nuance to us. And um, then we started to build our photo laboratory. We built dark rooms. We built receiving rooms. Everything you could think of we had to have. We had photographers coming over from Hollywood, The some of the mainline photo movie photographers who were using the very fast cameras that we had. Mm -hmm. And um, it was interesting to sit down and talk with them about how they shot movie film and they knew all the ins and outs of using those cameras. And um, then we also had some of the nuclear scientists from the University of Chicago joining us. They would give us lectures as to what they knew about what to expect from the nuclear explosion on the, not too far away on Bikini. And um, it was kind of a, an eye-opener because they really didn't know what to expect. Right. They told us that they didn't know if there would be a tidal wave, in which case we had a, a Navy destroyer tied up to the dock right on, close to where we were based, and we were practice getting onto that destroyer should there be a tidal wave coming over this the highest point on this island on Kwajalein was seven feet above sea level. <laughs> that was the highest point. So any kind of a wave could go all the way across the island and take anything off that was there. So that was our contact with the island. So what was happening here, um, again, this, we're talking about Operation Crossroads is what you were involved in, Dad. That's and, right. And let's go back and talk. Uh, this is post, this, the war has actually ended at this point when you were doing this. Just tell me peace if, treaty, that's correct. So, so the, these initial attacks that had happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that had already occurred. Right. And what were, so what was this Operation Crossroads for? It was organized to find the effects of nuclear explosions on all types of military equipment from naval vessels to anything you could think of, troops, mm -hmm. um, equipment, buildings, distances from the explosion, uh, an explosion that would be done in the air, certain feet above wa the water, underwater, and on a barge on the surface. And then they would monitor all this over the next few months and see what damage had been occurred. We had naval ships from almost every allied country in the world that donated ships to come and be anchored in, in the Bikini Lagoon, mm -hmm. all f certain distances and from directions from where the bomb was going to be fired off. Uh, they wanted to find just what destructive elements they'd have. Mm -hmm. So that's what we were looking for, and we were photographing to test. In fact, you've probably seen pictures in the movies of the naval ships in the bay and the large mushroom cloud going up from those ships. It was our squadron that was taking those pictures. Hmm. We were in the 509th Heavy Bombardment Aerial Photography Unit. And um, so we would take off when just before the, it was time to set the bomb off, depending on whether it was an aerial explosion or below the water. And we would fly to the point of order and then we would circle the cloud as it rose, and we would photograph the the cloud from all different angles. Um, our planes were had sides cut out of them so that we could uh, use our big cameras. We were strapped in so that we were standing literally beside a sliding door, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. on these planes, and um, taking 
very exciting pictures and bringing them back, developing them, printing them, sending them back to the United States. Um, that was our task. Now, were, uh, with the day that you had the first test, um, you know, that they were... That was ABLE Day, they called it. Okay, so ABLE Day. Um, tell was, me about... That was an aerial explosion. Okay. Was there any anxiety? I mean, were people oh, sure. afraid that, you know, you don't really know what's going to happen to you? Exactly. And was was there concern that maybe this explosion would knock the planes out of the air? And Yes, and maybe even break off... Kwajalein Island, the tip of it that's sticking up the coral, that's sticking up from the ocean's floor. Uh, you know, if we could have seen what the mountain looked like that built that Kwajalein, we wouldn't have been worried. But this way, we had the feeling we were standing on the tip of an icicle. Mm-hmm. And if there was enough jarring from a nuclear explosion, maybe that tip would break off and this whole darn island would be underwater and we'd go right with it. Sure, and the fact that you're up in the air next to this this cloud that was obviously so, you know, they had seen it, its destruction. They knew what, what it could do, but they didn't really understand it, which is why you were there. They right. were trying to assess the effects of it. And, um, you know, here you are in a plane with the door open, strapped in, taking pictures. Um, and was this, I know you talk, told me about how you had to wear the suit. We have the we suit had at heated home. heated suits because we had no... Um, pressurization up there okay and we were probably about 25,000 feet um, and the one thing that we did learn was of course that when we saw the smoke cloud and we were circling it taking all of our photographs uh, our we had Geiger counters attached to our flight suits mm-hmm. these would monitor the amount of radiation that we were getting in our plane and our captain pilot called back and one of our turns around and said that our all of our Geiger counters were in the danger zone and we were getting out of there because what had occurred, nobody knew this was going to happen, but the, the smoke cloud moved at a certain speed, but the radiation cloud was invisible and mm-hmm. it moved at a different speed. Mm-hmm. So we thought we were photographing the radiation cloud as well as the smoke cloud, but we flew, evidently flew too close to the radiation cloud and he did a quick dive to get out of that and so we were all fine Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we still have enough um, I have enough skin cancers to prove (laughs) that I was there (laughs) you're keeping your dermatologist (laughs) happy absolutely I'm keeping (laughs) you know it's it is quite amazing I mean what that was and I've seen the pictures you have a really cool yearbook that um, is your souvenir from from that time that has a lot of those pictures and we have some of your original photos that you took um and the the kind of the naivete about the whole thing. I mean, you know, let's just blow it up and take pictures and see what happens, and hopefully it'll right. be okay. That's exactly right. Um, did did Grandma know you were doing all this? Well, no, we weren't. <laughs> we weren't allowed to talk about it too much, as still they aren't in the in the military. So she, I would send her letters and just tell her where I was and. But she didn't know exactly what you were doing. No, she did not know exactly what we were doing. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. I don't think she would have uh, no. liked that too too much. No, no. <laughs> she took my being away even harder than I did, I feel. Yeah, yeah. Well, fortunately, um, your time after that, when did you come home from the military then, Dad? 1946. And I came home and um, flew to St. Louis, Missouri, to the aeronautical chart plant there and had an assignment of putting aeronautical charts together from a large picture that was 
probably about a 20-foot room where the whole floor was a picture. And we'd project this picture onto the floor, onto film, and onto paper. So we could see everything that was on that picture, but it was 20 feet in diameter. Um, it was the first experience I had of anything taken that large mm -hmm. in a picture type. So I was at Aeronautical Chart Plant for a few more months, and then by the fall of 1946, um, uh, Operation Crossroads had ceased to exist, and my my needs were over, and I decided I was going to invoke my contract with the government and tell them I was ready to go home. You'd done your thing. Which I did, and went home in time to go on to college. Um, and the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I'd ever be on the radio talking about it. That well, was the farthest from my mind. I laugh because uh, we got to do something really cool last year, and it was... Um, it was, I think it was your birthday last year, wasn't it? It was mm -hmm. for your birthday. And we went over and they had uh, at the Lion Air Museum, which is over there by John Wayne Airport. And if you haven't had a chance to go to this place, you really need to check it out. Um, but they had the, I think it was the Wings of Freedom Tour, I think is what it was called. I believe it was. And um, every year they um, have these old uh, restored World War II planes that come in to the you know, they tour different airports in the country and they came to the Lion Air Base uh, Air Museum. And so you got to ride in in one of these old planes. A B-17 Flying Fortress, which I had never flown in before. In fact, the plane I did fly in was so much bigger that they didn't even bring that one along. On that B-29? B-29. Yeah, but the B, you were on the B-17? I was in a B-17 Flying Fortress at, at John Wayne, yes. And it was such a great day because we walked in there, and of course there were a lot of military there. There were veterans. There were just people who were interested in it. And you were kind of like a little celebrity there. <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, you were because, you know, everywhere we would go and when people would, would talk about, you know, well, what experience it, where had you been? What did you, and you were able to say, yeah, I actually flew in these. I was, I actually was there. And you told about some of your experiences with Operation Crossroads and everybody wanted to hear your stories. And they were so cool. And it was like getting to see you through a different perspective. Um, I mean, I've always been proud of your service, but then to be able to see other people acknowledge that was really wonderful for well, me. Was, I enjoyed that it. That was 73 years ago. I know. Isn't that incredible? And you keep telling me like, well, well, I don't see what's the big deal. I just went and did my thing. I just signed up. By, I did what everybody else did that was right, my age. That's exactly right. But I said, well, your cool thing is that you, you're still here to tell us about it. And that's what makes it really special is the fact that, yeah, we can read about it in stories. There's movies, documentaries. And as we've talked about many times, history uh, gets told by the people of the present and sometimes it's important to have people from the past talk about and fewer and fewer of us yeah and and so that's why it's very important for you to share your stories um, and to talk about the fact that you know this was a very different time when people were um, called to to serve their country they felt that the country needed to be defended and it was kind of taking America out of a very safe isolated time and where where people really came together and to understand that there it's it's kind of impossible to understand that from modern day times because we were fearful we really were nobody knew exactly what was what could have happened to our country at that time and so everybody was willing to pull their share and mm -hmm. do whatever it took 
and certainly, you know, as as history is, not all of it is um, blissful, and not all of it is pretty, and there are lessons to be learned from history. But but also, um, I think it's important to understand the the motivations and the the time that you were living in, and mm-hmm. and what was inspiring you and, and people like you. And and so it's nice to have you be able to share that oh, impression of what that's like. And and I also have to, you know, you are definitely the reason that I do stuff like this. So it's all your fault, Dad. <laughs> I'll take the blame for Because that. you are a history teacher. Your first job, or when your first teaching position, that's what you became a teacher. And you were a history teacher, and you were always a lover of history. And oh, you, yeah. you kind of uh, instilled that in... Well, history is who we are and what we are. Exactly. Absolutely. But you always made it interesting. And even though sometimes we griped a little bit about having to stop at every Civil War battlefield (laughs) on our family vacations, it still was very interesting. And and you instilled a love of history in me that I am very grateful for. So so like I said, it's all your fault, Dad. Okay. (laughs) I'll I'll accept. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. Um, You're welcome. And I I appreciate... this was interesting to somebody. Well, if nothing else, it's always interesting to me. So thank Thank you, Merle Baker, and uh, of uh, for your service and uh, just for everything that that you've shared with with us today and shared with me. I appreciate it, Dad. I love you. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. (laughs) And thank you so much for joining me on Vintage Orange. We've come to a little uh, break here. We're going to be taking a break and then coming back in the next half hour, I'm going to be continuing on and we're going to be playing a recorded show of one of my favorite um, conversations that I had with my friend Chris Epting about his book about Theodore Roosevelt and his um, connection with John Muir and how when uh, the the national parks were being formed and it Chris wrote a wonderful book that we talked about and so we're going to be having that information when we come back in the next half hour so stay tuned this is Ellen Bell on KUCI 88.9 FM and I will see you on the other side <laughs> 